0: The important part about the character design over here is that the gorillas don't have legs. So you basically have <laughs> yeah. to just use your you have to use your hands to move around everywhere. Yeah. Wait for a yeah. moment
1: I thought you were talking about real life and my brain was like, Wait, what gorillas don't have legs? <laughs> Everyone, welcome to the Navic Gaming Roundtable. This is the one podcast to stay up to date with all the latest game business news. And today, I'm joined by I'm Manu Kumar, co-founder of Navic, and Matt Dayan, lead product manager at EA, and also content contributor at Navic. Hello, 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 hello. Matt. How's Man, good, good to be you? back. Yeah, it's good to see so, you, Manu.
0: Yeah, it's been been a bit um, after the after the Christmas episode. Um, yeah, this is, uh, I was telling you guys, yeah, my first more serious topic episode in a
2: bit. So <laughs> let's see how it goes.
1: Matt, your Corgi, how are, they, how are they doing?
2: They're doing well. So we have two Corgis and they're both fresh out of the groomers. So they are very <gasps> floofy right now. Uh, so yeah, good times. Good times.
1: <laughs> if I walk in the room, can you show them?
2: Uh, I will. I don't think they will. It's okay. podcasting time, so they're probably not going to come disturb us. But I do have a cat so. in my lap also. So there's that.
1: Wow. Oh. All <laughs> <laughs> the animals. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, before nice. we kick off into the episode, I also want to wish everyone a happy belated Lunar New Year. Uh, if you celebrated over the weekend, I hope you had a lot of good time. And today we're going to be covering quite a lot of ground. We'll be discussing Jam City's former leadership uh, that's founding Playlabs, Playtica's proposal to acquire Rovio, Gorilla Tag VR, and much more including a spicy take on eSports. So this is just very quickly to mark the occasion that uh, Blizzard Games is no longer available in mainland China. So earlier this week, uh, the publishing contract with NetEase expired and now the games are no longer available, except Diablo Immortal because that's covered by a separate contract with NetEase. Blizzard share that they're in talks with another publisher, but that deal is not finished. And even when it's finished, they still have to wait for the licensing to be awarded. Um, And also to clear the air that my prediction was completely wrong, that perhaps if the acquisition of uh, Activision Blizzard went through with Microsoft, that maybe they'd work again with NetEase for the publishing. But considering the very public relationship breakdown, breakdown between the two companies, I don't see how that could happen. Um, Yeah, just a quick question to the two of you. Do you think that the games now now being available for an indeterminate amount of time in mainland China, do you think that's going to hurt Activision Blizzard's performance significantly? Uh,
2: Significantly? I don't know. I mean, it's it's certainly a meaningful chunk of revenue, but you have to think that this this scenario was accounted for in the negotiations, right, in the breakup. Uh, So I'm assuming that they planned for some downtime.
0: Yeah, I'd agree. I mean I I think um I mean China is definitely you know a big market for uh for uh, Activision Blizzard so yeah it must be must have been accounted for though um the other question that I have is what 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 was the whole um what was the whole thing with uh, NetEase's response to Activision Blizzard and you know all of that drama and I, I didn't. I didn't uh, read that. But what is the whole drama about?
1: I think we can just cover. it. We can classify it as a public breakdown and a bit <laughs> tit for tat in terms of public comms.
2: Okay. 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 A difference of opinion.
1: A difference of opinion. <laughs>
0: so is, is 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 like the Nettie's response like worth a read uh, or? <laughs>
1: um, I think it is if you like spicy spicy okay. news.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. All right.
1: Yeah. I wouldn't call it, you know, very business informative. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you have a business informative update for us, Manu.
0: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess a uh, quick update from my side is Kai uh, first. So they just announced a pre-Series B round uh, of 27 million and this is a company that um, you know they started back in 2018. Uh, Three-person co-founding team, all from you know um, more of the f- on on the finance side of things. So from Morgan Stanley and um, one other banking entity, um, and and yeah, they kind of you know wanted to jump into uh, games because they uh, just saw Africa as a market that can be a pretty big growth market. Uh, for mobile gaming in the future so, so yeah over multiple rounds they've raised about like 57 million um and, and yeah like i said the most recent round was this 27 million pre series b and and yeah where i'm actually writing this big navic pro uh, essay about you know just kind of breaking down the african mobile gaming market and what kind of tailwinds that market is actually seeing um, you know, is it is it fertile uh, ground, um, including in you know the Sahara region yeah. <laughs> uh, for you know mobile gaming and stuff, um, and and then yeah, kind of breaking down further, you know uh, how Kai first has performed, but in general, like Kai first, Kai first has like this multi-pronged strategy to you know approach the market. Um, in like this one 2020 uh, podcast episode with the ceo he can, he mentioned the mission of the company um and you know how they want to execute on it which basically involves acquiring and developing uh, developing and publishing mobile games as one uh, or one or two parts of it uh, the third part is like licensing licensing third party games and then the fourth part is um Sometimes acquiring games to essentially like help them improve and relaunch and and they would relaunch it and kind of publish it at scale. So the good news with Kai first is they've kind of, you know, since 2018, they've kind of made like um, progress on each of these uh, strategies simultaneously. And along the way, they've learned also uh, probably the strategy that's working the best for them is the licensing third-party game stuff. So they're kind of taking this like C-limited approach of becoming the local publishing partner for big titles. So they, uh, for example, Call of Duty Mobile like recently opened South African servers in collaboration with Carry First. And you can immediately just see like the, you know, the downloads and DAU spike uh, after that point. So there are like some interesting results. And then in 2023, they're going to like play out this um, partnership with Riot Games where they are, um, you know, becoming their uh, local payment partner. And that's where like this pay first technology comes uh, comes into play. It's probably that whole pay first technology that's, you know, that gets me the most excited about this company and also kind of explains why, you know, someone like Convoy Ventures um, was an early backer uh, of this company. But... That pay-first, highly localized payment infrastructure that is mobile-first in a country where, you know, a lot of people are coming online through smartphones, like something like 90% plus. It makes a lot of sense. And there are a lot of parallels to, you know, how India uh, kind of saw its mobile gaming market flourish, uh, you know, with the launch of Reliance Geo in 2015. Um, and, you know, just like localized Payment infrastructure that was mobile first, so lots of parallels over there, and and yeah, in general, a uh, very interesting company, um, and yeah, congratulations to them for you know the new raise, and yeah, pretty excited to see uh, what they'll what they'll be doing uh, going ahead, and yeah, and especially how the Riot Games. Uh, partnership plays out.
1: I'm looking forward to reading your article on Avic Pro because it's a mark it's, it's a gaming market that doesn't get a lot of reporting and attention and so I'm, I'm keen to learn from it And you know generally the African continent was way ahead of, way ahead in terms of mobile banking as the primary way to make these transactions way before you know digital banks were fat in in uh, Europe. And so yeah, it's very interested to, to learn more about that. But, um, I, I think also a lot of the audience gets locked out because the platforms don't have like the payment options that are aligned with their I don't know most used local options um, and how their banking works. And so yeah I think that payment that payment section is extremely interesting to the growth of mobile games. There.
0: Yeah, the, the payment the pay first technology is probably like their you know, one of their strongest like scale vectors uh, that they have, which can not only be applied to mobile gaming, but even outside of that, you know, in general to apps, uh, they could kind of extend that business line too. But yeah, I would say that uh, gathering a lot of uh, gaming data on Africa was actually pretty hard. It was very surprising to see the lack of data on that. Yeah. Um it was. I was quite lucky that okay, uh, you know, Carrie First, in collaboration with Newzu, you know, did like a study of uh, some of the, you know, market metrics and stuff. Um, of course, there would be like some vested interests over there, so maybe the numbers look a little bit rosy, but but still, mm-hmm. it was it was a good anchor point.
1: Yeah, I think we're missing almost a company like Nico Partners does great covering in terms of data and analysis of the Asian gaming market and we're missing a company that's doing that for the African market.
0: Yeah yeah generally it's still like I would still say it's a pretty small market you know relatively but Mm -hmm. moving in the right direction.
1: And so the last update of today, before we dive into the discussion topics, is The Last of Us, uh, Siri driving some game sales. So in the last roundtable, Aaron wanted to do a shout out to the, the high quality of the debut episode of the Siri and um, the level of engagement that achieved. And I think looking at the evidence of the game, so the impact that it had on the game sales of Last of Us it's just yet another for yet another evidence of just a correlation between having a high quality transmedia strategy, having a strong IP that people already have a connection with due to gaming, and then how it impacts the the game sales. It's almost as if it prolongs a game's life cycle. And we saw this with Cyberpunk. We saw this with the Witcher game as well. So the numbers is that The Last of Us Part One, which is a PS5 version. It had a 238% spike in sales week-on-week week with our debut episode. And the PS4 version of the game, which is The Last of Us Remastered, had a 322% sales spike. Matt, take us away. What's happening in the city of Jam?
2: <laughs> the city of Jam. Okay, so um, yeah, quick update. Uh, Maybe not quick update, but uh, news from Jam City and a new venture called Play Lab. So uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the announcement of this new company and what it means for Jam City. But before we get into it, uh, just a bit of um, disclosure in the interest of transparency. I'm probably going to be a little bit critical and ask some questions, but you should know I used to work at Jam City for about a year um, and (laughs) it's been a while. I was there 2019 to 2020, so it's been a a long time since I've been there. But just in the interest of full disclosure, Um, that is sort of my bias coming into this. Um, so, so we're the news. gonna get
0: some uh, good insider information. I, I don't or... think I have any
2: insider information, actually. You know, as much as I would like to say that I do, unfortunately, I don't. And what you know, right. what minuscule um, equity that I have in Jam City is not going to be impacted by this one way or another. So I really don't have a, a horse in this race, but I do have some opinions, which we'll get into. Um, so the news there was kind of two two parts to this. The first little bit that came out was that. Um, the CEO and CTO of Jam City were stepping aside, and at, at first, it wasn't announced why they were they're moving Josh Iguado, who's the COO and co-founder of Jam City, into the CEO position. Okay, and then it later came out that the reason the CEO Krista Wolf and CTO Abra Whitcomb left the company was to go start this new venture called Play Labs, and Play Labs uh, raised thirty-two million dollars in seed funding. Uh, led by Andreessen Horowitz. Um, And Playlabs is, I'm quoting here from the A16Z piece, they're focused on building the next generation of social platforms, leveraging AI and Web3. And they are creating a new platform for users to play, talk, battle, trade, and adventure together. Uh, they're also building. I'm still quoting here. They're also building an AI protocol platform, which will help with everything from user generated content to matchmaking to 2D to 3D asset rendering. So very ambitious, very much of the moment with AI and Web3, um, and you know two very experienced founders, right? So Chris and Aber, they were also former MySpace founders. And of course, they were founders of Jam City. So two very successful ventures for them, two very successful entrepreneurs, and completely understandable why they would attract such interest from a venture capital firm. Um, so it's, it's an interesting venture. Um, the connection to Jam City here, outside of you know the people involved, is that they are taking a game called Champions Ascension, which was Jam City's first foray into Web3 gaming with them and the blockchain gaming division from Jam City, which was about 50 people, uh, according to the uh, VentureBeat article that I was reading. Um, Now, uh, as for Jam City, uh, as I mentioned, Josh Iguado is gonna take over as CEO. He's a really experienced uh, entertainment industry executive having worked um, for major entertainment firms outside of gaming in the past. I've met him. I've spoken to him. He's a very nice guy and and very, very experienced, very competent. So I'm sure he's going to do a great job. Um, And uh, also um, on the board side of things, uh, uh, Sung Wan Lee, who is the former chairman of Jam City, is now moving into the executive chairman role. He is also the president of Netmarble. And why that's important is that Netmarble is the majority owner of Jam City. So just some uh, commentary from uh, Josh Iguado. He said that Jam City is not likely to continue investing in blockchain games in the coming year. Uh, So it sort of made sense to spin out uh, Champions Ascension, but that they may revisit blockchain gaming in the future. Uh, It's just that it's not the right time for them. And when you look back at the last, let's say 12 to 18 months of Jam City, uh, we can sort of see why they arrived at that decision. Um, So, you know, back in... All the way back in September of 2021, Jam City uh, had raised $350 million to acquire Ludia. This was following a failed attempt to go public via a SPAC. Um, they ended up acquiring Ludia, which has uh, Jurassic World Alive and a couple of other games, um, and sort of expanded their presence uh, meaningfully there. Uh, but then uh, they also went through a round of layoffs uh, around four to five months ago. Um, which I think is interesting given that in the VentureBeat article, um, they were quoted as, as saying that they'd been planning this move, the play labs move for the last six months. And then the layoffs happened four to five months ago, um, which amounted to roughly 17% of the workforce. And that was estimated around 150 to 200 people, which is meaningful. It was across the organization. I, I guess my question would be like, um, it, what does that mean for Jam City moving forward? Like, what are their prospects? I know that they talked in the article about some games they have coming out. They're doing a, a DC uh, uh, superheroes game. Um, seems like they're moving away from Web3. Uh, do we think that maybe... Let's just talk about Jam City first before we get to Play Labs. Do we think that maybe Net Marble is going to step in here and, and take a bigger role in Jam City's um, direction moving forward? What do you all think about that aspect of the story? I think uh, probably
0: like this person moving into the executive chairman position is more to um, more to kind of like help support the new CEO as he kind of you know steps mm-hmm. into his new shoes. Um, I think usually like when at least in other companies, what I've seen is you know if uh, if if there's a new CEO, the old CEO does kind of move into this like chairman position to you know help. Uh, train and like complete the transition and things. So maybe that's the case over here. Whether Netmarble like plays a greater role and such um, I don't know I personally haven't even looked into uh, what Jam City's you know general revenues and general trajectory even is looking like these days. Um, I don't know if you have Matt
2: uh, on data I, I haven't or, looked right, at but... the numbers in preparation for this article but my sort of general understanding is that um, it hasn't they haven't you know, had any major hits recently. I think their last big hit would have been, uh, Harry Potter maybe, uh, which was several years ago at this point, or maybe, um, Disney emoji blitz is a very successful game for them as well. Um, but you know, they had, um, they had a game called, uh, wild things, which ended up, um, after, uh, a bit of back and forth ended up on the Netflix platform, um mm. and they had uh they had a I think a, they had a couple of other games that were sort of cancelled or rejiggered in some way. Um so Yeah, I think they were also I, like yeah.
0: pretty like public about, you know, the whole IDFA stuff affecting that portfolio yeah. portfolio and like generally things being in decline and then they had to like rebuild a lot of internal marketing tech to kind of get things back on track. And they're probably at that point right now. Um I don't know, my gut says it's it's not going to uh, change anything with Netmarble. Um, I guess the old CEO and CTO just want to focus, you know, and um, instead of like Chris, uh, you know, mentoring uh, the new CEO, Josh, he just wants to like focus on the new (laughs) startup maybe. And that's where they're getting like support from Netmarble leadership. Um, I'm... I don't know but again i haven't like looked into jam city's like performance as a company and whether they really need any extra guidance you know from from netmarble
1: i think it's a trend we've been seeing just across the mobile the mobile space that you have to focus you have to find how to make it work with att and how that affects how you design the new games and especially with blockchain cooling down and before it I think initially with a hype train, it seemed, yeah, if you make web three games, there's this whole new market and you can make these amazing games that people want to come in and play, you know, play to earn. And I think there's just been a realization that actually making a web three game is (laughs) extremely hard. You need different talent in the company. Um, Think about games in a different way. And so I I don't, I I can only assume that maybe there was also some kind of disagreement of the direction of the company that perhaps you have someone in leadership that is extremely passionate about being in the ble- bleeding edge and exploring new markets whilst other parts of the company want to stay focused. And I think overall, it seems like everyone might be getting a good deal out of this. You have people who want to be working bleeding edge on the bleeding edge pursuing that. And Jam City gets to refocus and figure out, okay, how do you do mobile free-to-play within the ATT space?
0: I don't do know. Think- like I, I'd probably... Oh yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead I have Randy. a competing okay. theory on that. Um, yeah, I, I but, yeah. do as well. Go, <laughs> Please, okay. go ahead. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe my maybe we have the same one. Um uh, my feeling is um so Jam City did want to go public, right? At some point. Yeah. Um and then that ended up like not going through. But that doesn't mean they don't want to do that going ahead into the future. Maybe that is, you know, still on the cards. But There's no reason like why Jam City could not have just incubated a blockchain gaming team with, you know, Chris and the CTO, like really focusing on that team, all internally in Jam City. Apart from the reason that, you know, if they have like these bigger plans of going public and stuff, maybe Jam City just did not want to get into any kind of regulatory hassle that will come with having like a blockchain, you know, department or you know just any kind of like crypto connect and stuff um, an and netmarble point. netmarble is like based in south korea which has a pretty you know active blockchain gaming scene maybe there was like advice from there that was um you know given to jam city that eh, if you have like you know bigger plans then maybe it's better you kind of like spin spin this out
2: well i i i'll disagree with with a uh, a couple of points that, that both of you made one is that like there's no reason you you said there's no reason they couldn't just incubate um uh, i mean i think they tried that um with champions ascension um i don't know it's it's difficult to say how successful or not it was because the game isn't live yet but um it's sort of like a kind of an innovator's dilemma in a way like it's difficult for a company that's very focused on casual match three puzzle games and narrative games and you know parlor, casino games to go then do a web 3 game uh, that's you know not only a new set of technologies and a different audience but also it's like a from what I understand it's kind of like a fighting slash midcore hardcore game um, so also a different like design space entirely let's say um, so yeah, I, mean, I think know, it's turning out yeah. to be a full-fledged MMORPG yeah yeah, yeah. so very different right from from um, let's say uh, a cookie jam city is better. Um, and, and then the other, the other thing I, I would disagree with that, that you mentioned Maria was that it was a good outcome for everyone. Um, I think if I was an employee of jam city, especially one that was laid off four months ago, I would think that this is not a good outcome for everyone. Um, and you know, maybe I just don't have all the information here. Um, this is where I'm, I'm going to be a little bit critical, but like, You know, they they said that they've been working on this spinoff, this deal, for about six months, which means that the leadership of the company that went to go do this venture have been working on this idea, this this new platform, whatever it is, uh, funded by Jam City. And the employees of Jam City are essentially supporting this endeavor, which they now have no interest in, right? Like, if, you know, Jam City is a private company, um, and they offer, you know, um, share-based compensation as part of their compensation packages. But if I have a bunch of Jam City shares, I have no interest in Play Labs now, right? Um, so I'm sure that there's there's lots of information that I don't have available. That's, you know, maybe there was some uh, compensation uh, as part of the spinoff that Jam City gets some. Um, share of Play Labs, or there's some funding that goes back to Jam City or I don't know, I'm I'm speculating at this point but um, to me I I would think that if I was sort of um, working really hard on some casual puzzle games at Jam City and I see that the execs are working on some completely different project that will have no bearing on the future of Jam City I don't know, I would feel a little bit conflicted about that To be clear, like I'm not criticizing the founders of Play Labs. Like, go pursue it. It seems like a really interesting opportunity. I'm not going to begrudge anyone for, you know, being an entrepreneur and trying something new. I think it's it's awesome. I'm excited to see what they build. I just think that the optics are a little bit weird. Um and that if I was an employee of GM City, which I am not, but I if I was, I would be a little bit um conflicted, let's say. Yeah, so there's there's like a there's
0: a cultural uh, angle. that That's interesting. I think I also agree with that. Um, there could be like this potential, you know, regulatory angle. Something, one third angle that I just thought of based on something you said, like Jam City was actually funding everything, right? And, right. And then, I mean, it is like a pretty experimental thing. And, you know, if Chris, um, I mean, basically now they had to raise like 32 million, you know, for this mm-hmm. like experimental thing. And they'll probably be like, future funding rounds that are coming up, you know, was it in Jam City's best interest to continue funding all of that? Maybe
2: a spinoff would actually be like, you know. uh, And they also laid off 150 plus employees during that time span that they were building up this new idea. Yeah, Yeah,
1: I seem to remember that, at least looking at LinkedIn, some people during those layoffs were working on Champions Ascension when... When that happened, and yeah, I, I I want to apologize. It was quite insensitive of me to say everyone got a good deal out of this. I definitely didn't consider the the layoffs. They definitely didn't get a good deal out of this change. And so, one thing that I can't fully comprehend, like thirty two million seed round, is this the economic downturn twenty twenty three? It's
2: a big round, right? Um, mm. I you know, I mean, yes, we're in a bit of a downturn from a macro perspective, but uh, Andreson Horowitz has, you know, plenty of dry powder, right? Um, that they need to deploy at some point. I, I didn't see, I did not see in the Play Labs announcement whether it came from A16Z Crypto or from the Games Fund. It looked like the people who wrote the announcement were from both funds, so I don't know if it was like a mix of funds or one or the other. So I can't say one way or another, but both of them are very large funds. Let's let's say that.
0: But I mean, this is this is exactly the kind of team that you know. VCs are looking for hundred uh, percent. in this market, at least. So um so yeah, from that angle, thirty-two million, I, I don't know. Maybe even feels a little bit small.
2: <laughs> maybe it could have been a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, I mean AI, UGC, Web3, it's they got all the buzzwords. It's all
1: all <laughs> of it at once. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You remember? You remember? Uh, Playco is uh, hundred million seed yeah. round. Was it? Was it a seed round? Hundred million? Or something? I, I, I'd have to check, yeah. but I, I think that's right.
1: When? When that, was that?
0: That was crazy.
2: That was, that was like, like twenty-one um, or something. Yeah, two three years back. Uh, let me check. Yeah, it was a hundred hundred million Series A at a series one billion dollar okay. valuation. Okay, Series A. Okay, still better. <laughs> that was twenty twenty, by the way. That was September yeah. twenty twenty.
1: Ah, the good old days. Continuing on a very spicy topic today, we have now Platika and Rovio. Well, Platika's proposal to acquire Rovio.
0: So, so yeah, basically what happened is, um, I don't know, maybe a couple of days back, a few days back, um, Platika announced that an acquisition offer to Rovio um, at a 60% uh, premium of what their market cap was at that point. So yeah, it feels like, like a 750 to $800 million, uh deal. Um, they did make... Um, so this offer basically happened at a uh, 9.05 euro per share price, but they did make one offer also back in November to Rovio, which happened at a 8.50 euro price. So this was like a 6.5% increase on that initial offer of course this was like huge news <laughs> everyone you know uh i i guess the fire emoji on you know the share link of this across uh different slacks i mean yeah the fire emoji was there everywhere so everyone was uh you know quite quite excited shocked at the same time and kind of trying to make sense of it but yeah i don't know where where, where should we start um I guess you're keeping uh,
1: me on the edge of my seat, Manu. Tell me your spicy take. <laughs> I want to hear your spiciness.
0: Okay, I guess. Uh, I guess my overall take on this deal is, Playtika really needs it bad, and Rovio probably doesn't. So, and I tried to like you know just uh, like through this analysis or you know through this talk I'm... Trying to, basically trying to like explain okay why that might be the case. So yeah, so just kind of starting off with you know a little bit of how Platika has reached this position. Um, so they went public in Jan 2021, um, File for IPO, then you know raised 1.9 billion um, and had like an opening price of like 33 uh, USD versus their target price of 22. IPO went super well. 2 years later that happened in Jan 2021 so now we're in Jan 2023 2 years later their stock is down uh you know about 50% from the 52 week high basically you know things are tanking pretty bad uh, at Playtika. um and then and then in Feb 2022 uh, they also i mean this was they kind of saw this coming right so in Feb 2022 they also kind of announced you know they're exploring strategic uh, alternatives or options, which includes like getting acquired or merging with another entity. And that's when this private equity company called um, Joffrey Capital uh, wanted to end up purchasing uh, you know, I think about 25% of a stake in Platica. I recently learned that whole deal actually fell through in uh, December 2022 and um, Joffrey Capitals, you know one of their founding partners, uh, James Lou, um, he stepped down from the board of Playtica and he wrote this letter uh, to them saying, basically saying that it, it's, uh, you know, Playtika's organization has deficient corporate management <laughs> capabilities, um, you know, uh, various conflicts of interest across the board and, you know, just general communication fa- failures. And yeah. You know, in a nutshell, he wasn't really impressed during his time there, and essentially, Joffrey Capital also is kind of out. Basically, Playtica really needs to re-strategize, and they desperately need a turnaround strategy. Very high level, like you know, I I, I won't like quote too many numbers over here, but maybe just like talk about the recent, uh, the more like trending stuff. Um, very high level revenue growth for Playtica is slowing. Um their EBITDA is also dropping um they, they do have like about like 30 to 35 percent margins which is which is quite good but but still it is it is kind of uh you know flat to dropping DAUs on top of that all, are also like you know continuing to drop um and you know if you read the, their monetizing metrics uh in in um in the in the earning reports, you'll see like all the monetization metrics are going up, but everyone also kind of knows like when your DAUs are dropping on a portfolio that is majorly dominated by like, very old casino titles and very old casual titles, it just means like your payer community is becoming more concentrated, right? So generally not, not a great sign. All of that kind of means that platica is really kind of surviving on a very, very aging portfolio. Which will only like move closer and closer towards sunsetting over time, and therefore organic growth for Playtica, which is essentially new game development, is really really important.
1: Yeah. Um, and their their acquisitions have not been performing as expected with Redecor yep. and
0: Yep, so, closing
1: the was it seriously the studio that closed?
0: Yep, seriously closed. They did the Redecor acquisition or reworks. They also acquired Wuga. um But, I mean, they did all these acquisitions in hopes of, you know, uh, these studios, once they get acquired, they will, Playtika will kind of plug those studios' games into Playtika's core loop <laughs> of the business. Uh, right. And, you know, and then it would like start generating more profits and then they would reinvest those profits into new game development through the newly acquired studios. None of that, none of that ended up happening. So, I mean... Basically, the whole of Playtica across all the acquired studios and internal uh, game development houses haven't been able to release a hit since 2017. It's it's just been way too long. So yeah, so yeah.
1: and it's so so hard to unta- untangle because you know it might not be the acquired studios issue in this in this process. Seems like a complicated relationship with Playtica. I'm I'm not yep, too aware eventually. of that, but from the outside looking in, that that's the pattern that seems to be going on. Yeah, potentially
0: it could be like for whatever reason, but ultimately Playtica really needs to like move towards a younger portfolio, you know, Uh, just kind of being in this old portfolio of slots games, uh, primarily like making up 50% of their revenue and other casual games like, and it's basically two games, Solitaire, Grand Harvest and June's Journey, which makes up most of the other 50%
2: it's it's in a pretty precarious position. Um, so Manu, so anyway, on that point about oh yeah. uh, moving to a younger portfolio, has Playtica said anything about why they're targeting Rovio because that seems like the opposite of young. They were like one of the earliest games uh, mo- earliest companies to mobile gaming. You know, they started out with like premium mobile games. So Angry Birds is like, you know, quite an old franchise. Um have they said anything about why Rovio specifically? So
0: platica hasn't like Specifically, said anything about Rovio, but I think one can kind of infer it just looking at, you know, Rovio's current performance and also like future plans. Basically, um, Platica kind of has like three, I'll get back to the Rovio point, but Platica just has like three paths uh, in my mind. Um, They also had like a fourth path path with the whole Joffrey Capital thing, but that's, you know, out (laughs) now. So, the first path is you know just active portfolio diversification and organic growth, which means um you know their current portfolio, like really juicing that in terms of live ops and such, and then, you know continuing to grow revenues from that. It is working for a portion of the portfolio, which might be their older titles, but you know the reworks acquisition, six hundred million, that game. Has been tanking ever since that acquisition happened. So something is off in, you know, Playtica's, um, I don't know what they, I forgot what the name of their platform was. Uh, the Playtica Boost platform, I think it's called. Um, and that kind of, you know, uh, is is their live ops engine. So there's some cracks in that whole core loop of Playtica. The other second path is new game development and organic growth. But yeah, like I mentioned, No new games from, you know, Playtica's ecosystem since 2017. Switchcraft from VUGA, uh, you know, maybe was like one of the big bets, but that's also not really performed well. And I don't know, I I really don't know what's happening to it now. But yeah, also in like, you know, Playtica's presentation and stuff, they just never mention how many new games they're working on. So it, it maybe just communicates a little bit like how important they find that you know a little bit so the new games pipeline is just not mentioned anywhere and then part three is m a right um which they have been doing ever you know uh, for like the past uh, few years but even even in the m a um even in the m a part, first of all playtica has some pretty heavy debt so they have about 2.5 billion uh, in debt. 20, 25 to about thirty percent of their operating profits are actually paid back as interest to this debt. <laughs> so that's that, that's like wow. a pretty like meaningful chunk of going uh, of operating profits going back into interest payments. They currently have about like one point two billion in cash, um, and just compare that with like the all cash deal to Rovio that's 67% hmm. of their you know cash and cash equivalents uh, so if they if they get Rovio they're basically left at like 33% of their you know cash and cash equivalents so in general like even the whole MA path for a for a target as big as Rovio also feels a little bit um, off
2: yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, on the cash front because I think Rovio is famously known to have a really good cash cash balance when you acquire the company, you also get the, I don't know, like the cash percentage of the company, right? Yeah. So per- perhaps that's their assumption is they'll plug the hole because Rovio has really health cash balance. Yeah, I think Rovio is like at about
0: uh, 200 million. Um, so it it will, yeah, a little bit, it might plug it, but not really make it yeah. up in whole. Um, so, but, oh yeah, one, one other point about the whole M&A path, play so this was like an all cash deal, right, to Rovio, and I I guess the reason it's an all cash deal is because like nobody wants Playtika stock <laughs> at the moment, <laughs> you <Yeah. laughs> know. So oh, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> so it's it's kind of like I mean. I guess Platica is kind of like backed itself into a little bit of a corner over here where, you know, their stock yeah. is uh, kind of down the drain. They can't really use that as, you know, a financial lever. They do have the cash, but they can't... I mean, if they spend 67% of their cash on a Rovio acquisition, that's like, you know, not even shooting yourself into the in a, into the foot, but you're cutting off a leg entirely. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, they have like this heavy debt and they it wouldn't make sense to raise more debt to fuel any acquisition uh because they're paying a lot of their operating profits as interest anyway so Platica is in a corner can i,
1: can I it, ask a question it, Manu?
0: Yeah. Are, one yeah just one comment is it is okay. it like relatively clear to you guys like why they need <laughs> why they need well, this well this is why
1: i want to put it across because i'm not sure if okay. i'm understanding understanding it correctly so from everything you said what i'm concluding is that Playtica has a lot of debt, and they're struggling to find the next hit game. From what we've seen in the mobile gaming ecosystem, companies that relied on centralizing their games with like this LiveOps um, UA platform, they're struggling because ATT really created some chaos in how it was operating. Now we look at Rovio, and Rovio is a profitable company. It has shown stability. It has great, great cash flow. Um, undervalued company, an IP. Like essentially acquiring Rovio is almost just a secure cash flow that you get into your company. Ro-
0: Rovio has like all the cards in its hand. Like if it, if Rovio is not like seeing this, like <laughs> they can they can kind of like define the price. I feel to Playtika for all yeah, the b- because of all the points that you said right now. So I'm understanding correctly um,
1: that this this proposal to acquire Rovio is to get their stable cash flow to keep funding Playtika trying to rejuvenate their portfolio and move away from underperforming genres.
0: I think I think I think it's maybe less the cash flow is definitely a part of it. I think it's more about just acquiring a stable business that has shown consistent stability and growth over time. Even though that consist even though that growth is not like, you know, exponential or anything like that, it's just it's stable and it's consistent and it's a healthy business. Even, and, and yeah, there are a few caveats. You know, okay, like 80, 82%, I think, or 80% of their entire revenue is only Angry Birds games. Okay, fine. But um, it is still a healthy business uh, that maybe is getting a little bit undervalued in the market right now. But the other thing that, um, that, um, uh, Rovio has is um, a new games pipeline, and that's what <laughs> that's what also Playtika really really needs. So you know, uh, Rovio keeps mentioning that you know they they have like ten new games in development. A lot of them are like various Angry Bird IP spin-offs uh, but also you know they have this Ruby game studio that's kind of also shifting from hyper casual to you know these hybrid casual games. Um, and yeah, they. They also did Small Town Murders, which, you know, saw some early success, um, even though now it's not really there. But um, but yeah, Rovio does have like some proven ability to kind of, you know, put out new games. Um, even though yeah, most of them were taking like the Angry Birds IP, but it does have like that proven ability.
1: And we've seen um, Rovio perform well with UA when a lot of companies were struggling to scale. Uh, their UA operations, and I believe in one of their recent games, is it is Angry Angry Birds Dream something Dream Journey? What's it called? Dream Dream Blast uh, maybe. Dream Blast, yeah. Looking at their data, it seems like they've managed to crack live ops. So they're also improving their portfolio and how they operate with the the live free to play model.
0: Yeah, I think like yeah, probably like. And um Rovio's more active portfolio and the portfolio that contributes to like 82% of their revenue, it, it would still be like the aging on that track of an aging portfolio. So like if if the deal goes through, then Playtica's portfolio just becomes a little bit more old. <laughs> uh mm-hmm. but, but again, Rovio has like some proven track record in kind of creating new games. They also have a healthy new game pipeline. And those are two things that Playtica really, really needs. And it seems like, you know, platica needs it to an extent where they want to like basically give away like sixty-seven sixty-seven percent of their, you know, cash balance uh um to kind of make it happen. So so overall, um yeah, rovio so yeah, you know, why would Rovio um or why does platica want Rovio? Um yeah, the new game pipeline, but it is, you know, uh it may be a little bit unproven. Uh, then, Rovio has these like stable profits, you know, slow and steady. Um, and but at the same time, they have like an aging portfolio of games. Rovio also has like very very low debt, about six six point three million in debt debt. Uh, so it's yeah insignificant versus you know uh, their cash balance, which is also like really good for Playtika. And uh, Rovio has a constantly growing cash pool. Um, you know, again, slow and steady, um, but yeah, it'll not make up, uh, for, you know, 800 million of, uh, acquisition, full cash acquisition. Um, so yeah,
1: I think my, 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 prediction is that this deal is not going through and I feel like that's our general prediction here and the prediction of, of the industry. But the question I, I keep coming yeah. back to is does Rovio even have a price tag? to which they would sell to Playtika. Because from what I've heard, the, the culture of studios in Finland is extremely different to Playtika's culture of leadership and, and operations. And also, I think Rovio absorbed quite a lot of talent when, when, um, when, when Playtika closed the, the Seriously studio. Um, yeah, I, I culturally, would Rovio accept his acquisition? Even if the price was, I don't know, all, all of the cash flow that Playtika <laughs> has.
0: I don't know. I'll probably like trust uh, Mika's opinion on this and what he wrote, like uh, in Navik Digest, where he was saying that you know the Finnish gaming community is very very tight knit. So yeah, I, I'd I'd have, I'd probably like trust um, you know Mika's opinion on the cultural aspect of things. Um, he did mention in his Navik Digest piece that. Um, uh, that, you know, the Finnish gaming community is a very tight-knit one. And um, just looking at the way things went with seriously um, and that developer community now getting also spread across Rovio, um, looking at how, you know, reworks and redecor's performance has kind of gone after the acquisition. Um, yeah, The general mood uh, towards Playtika in, in Finland uh, it maybe isn't really in the best place. So, so yeah, that that was his take, and uh, you know, Mika is Mika is usually
2: right about things. So, <laughs> yeah. it is interesting that they decided to go back to the well of Finnish gaming companies, given sort of the public criticism that has come out about the cultural differences between Playtika and Seriously. Um, I wonder. If uh, maybe Playtica doesn't really care, maybe they just want the IP and the business, and they don't care so much about the employees per se. Um, you know, to your point, Maria, about like is there a price that Robio would accept this? I think there has to be because Robio is a publicly traded company, and so right. at a certain point, they have a f- you know fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to accept the best deal. Um, but um, I don't know. It will be interesting to see but- what that price is if they can find it.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I. Yeah, just given like all the numbers and, you know, all this background, bro. I feel Rovio can kind of set the price to a really good extent. They have like <laughs> really strong negotiation leverage. Uh, so, but yeah, it was at least good to see that. Um, and this was like an opinion from the Invest Game newsletter, which I found quite smart that it was good to see that um, even though this, um, you know, that uh, enterprise value to revenue multiple um pre-announcement was you know 0.8. Um after the announcement, Rovio stock did shoot up and um and also the value that Platica is putting on this brings that EV to revenue multiple more than the 1.5, 1.6 change, which is actually closer to you know the still fronts uh of, of the world. So in a way, uh Platica is actually um Bringing like Rovio's valuation more in line with the market, um, yeah, with with this, um, so yeah, just just another perspective to kind of uh, you know measure that offer with,
1: but yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. But yeah, overall, um, sorry, sorry, one last comment. Overall, um, yeah, my prediction is also, yeah, it's not not looking too great for for Playtica. I'd be Pretty skeptical if Rovio kinda goes ahead with this. But I don't know. Maybe maybe Rovio makes a counter offer um, that Platica cannot refuse. So
1: <laughs>
0: but, or, or yeah.
1: <laughs> we'll have to wait and see then. Hopefully someone will figure it out. Okay,
2: Matt. Yeah, we don't talk about VR that much on the podcast, but we're going to delve into it a little bit here. So specifically, we're going to talk about Gorilla Tag VR. So you may have heard about this. Um, It's kind of the latest sort of VR sensation. Um, It's sort of overtaken Beat Saber as the V title in VR. Recently, this coverage, I think, is from uh, early January or or December. It it had accrued more than $26 in IAP revenue, which I think is pretty impressive for a VR game. Um, And if you haven't seen this game or played it, basically it's the classic children's game of tag, but everyone is a a gorilla and you kind of swing around the map with um, your arms as the way to move around. So that's how you kind of like swing from branch to branch or you propel yourself around the map. And uh, while I'm probably not doing a good job of describing the motion, um, <laughs> apparently it's like really simple and intuitive to pick up. This was like uh, this was discussed in the uh, the Venture Beat article about it, um, where they sort of prototyped this movement um, system first, and then they added the gorilla part of it later because it just it made so much sense to the early playtesters and and the developers. Um, I, I, I guess they've now added a tutorial, but initially there was no instructions and it was just that intuitive that you could just pick it up and go. Um, so, you know, why has Guerrilla Tag VR been successful? There's only four modes, right? And three of them are variations of tag. The fourth mode is just a, it's like a just chat mode. It's a social mode. And so th- this social aspect has been really key, I think, um, for the success of Gorilla Tag VR. And you see that in some of the other successful um applications on vr like like rec room or vr chat it's very heavily social um and let's see they just a couple of statistics here a peak mau of 2.3 million and they had seven hundred sixty thousand playing on christmas day alone um and Mm. christmas day tends to be a pretty big day for vr um usually a bunch of people get vr headsets and try it out for the first time and so you see a spike in In activity and engagement on that day. Uh, This particular game, Gorilla Tag, is available on MetaQuest and Steam, but it is not available on PSVR yet. Um, Let's see. So I covered the strong social element. It also benefited from virality on TikTok. Uh, I am taking the media coverage for their word here because I am not on TikTok, so I don't know this firsthand, but uh, apparently it, it sort of caught on with TikTok. They've not really done any formal direct marketing, um, themselves, the developers. So, um, you know, really impressive outsized success for a small team. Um, and then I thought this was kind of fun. One article even recommended it as an interesting way to work out in VR, an (laughs) upper body workout, get some cardio in. Um, so I guess you can adjust, um, the, uh, how do I describe this? Like the, the, the motion, the motion kind of, yeah. So like it's, it's, um, the distance that you travel, based on the uh, force that you put into the arm motion, can be adjusted so that it's more or less. So you can get like a more or less of a workout. Let's say, like, so you have, so you have pull your arms harder?
1: You have your arms up in the air because you're swinging from the branches. Is it?
2: You can. You don't so if you're just like traversing straight ahead, you kind of like do like a skiing motion where you're like you um, have your arms forward and then you push back and you sort of propel yourself with your arms. The, the, uh, but you I think can the swing from
0: branch to branch. The important part about the character design over here is that the gorillas don't have legs. So you basically have <laughs> yep. to just use your you have to use your hands to move around everywhere. Yeah. Wait for a yeah. moment.
1: I thought you were talking about real life. And my brain was like, wait, what gorillas don't have legs? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Mind blown, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, visually it's it's very simple, let's say. It's not like um this really like hd experience you know it's it's closer to like minecraft style graphics it's very kind of you know pixelated it's all gorillas all the um monetization is um like cosmetic uh iap so you see a bunch of gorillas and silly hats and shirts and stuff uh jumping around and you can you can easily understand why it's like a very social kind of silly game um and so uh, maybe 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 yeah Yeah, maybe Matt knows this a little tidbit, but I don't
0: know, Maria, if you do, but one of the other reasons that it kind of became quite viral is also like the whole TikTok thing, right? But basically what was happening on TikTok and like, you know, Twitch streams and YouTube videos is because you kind of have to like move around in this game using your arms and because you're in VR, you also have, you kind of have the, uh, you know, feeling to maybe move your legs a bit. People were basically, you know, just bashing into furniture in their house and breaking (laughs) fingers and legs. And they broke furniture pieces and whatnot. And, uh, you know, a lot of... I was watching like YouTube videos before this uh, recording and there were just a bunch of videos of people just screaming like, ah, oh, dude, oh shit, man, I broke my <laughs> arm. Oh, dude, I broke my leg. <laughs> and it, that's just wow. the video. Like, you forget about the game and just, you know, kind of enjoy the pain, I guess. <laughs> <But>
1: enjoy <laughs> like, the pain. <laughs> yeah,
0: we're hearing the pain.
2: <laughs> but uh, anyway, sorry, Matt. No, that's okay. I mean, we, we've kind of covered, like, what is Gorilla Tag VR. I, I would encourage you to watch the videos if you've not seen any footage of this game. It does look pretty fun, I have to admit. I don't have a VR headset, but it looks pretty fun. Um, so, you know, we talked about, like, what makes it successful. And kind of the segue I want to make here is, what does this tell us about the VR gaming market, generally, and VR as a gaming platform? Um, and so I'll just give you a quote from the COO, of the developer, they're called Another Axiom, and I'll turn it over to you um, for a bit of discussion here. So, contrary to a lot of public discourse, this is the COO, VR is in a really, really good place right now and things are getting better. A message we want to share for the VR industry is that it's possible for developers to have a meaningful hit in VR and the audience wants content. What do you guys think about that? Do Do you think that this is an outlier? Do you think that VR is a viable platform to develop on? Uh, what do you think? I, I disagree with his last comment about <laughs> people want
1: content.
0: Course, yeah. I mean, I guess like the the simple stat anyone can like look up is how many. So like Steam has like Steam VR also, right? And you can look mm-hmm. up game launches in Steam VR over time. And that number peaked in 2017 after like the 2016 hype. And ever since it's been going down, the number of VR game launches has actually like dropped quite a bit. I think um, in 2022, it was like closer to 500 versus, you know, 1000 in 2017. So that's definitely a function of just like general, you know, market sentiment around both from the consumer and maybe even the developer side. I guess developers from the developer angle, if I had to like summarize it in one sentence, they a lot of developers need to be convinced about building content for a platform that maybe has a little unknown future mm-hmm. <laughs> in a little in 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 some way and that's a that's a hard uh, you know thing to convince developers of who you know have limited budgets and limited time and they want to you know maximize returns so
1: yeah. I just want to jump in on that, that. It's already hard to build a cross-platform game where you build it for console and then you need to port it. I don't know to Switch or and then mobile. That's difficult already. And we we have we actually seen with uh, PlayStation VR two. It's not compatible. It's not backwards compatible with the first edition. And yeah. so now the developers are essentially having to um, reprogram the inputs. It's quite a lot of investments to keep up with how the platforms change in VR. And so it's not only the future that's uncertain of the platform in and of itself, but it has a very short life cycle for how long your game can also bring in the revenue.
2: As you both rightly point out, there's a bit of a chicken and an egg problem, right? Um, the The audience will not come if there are not hit games and developers will not develop hit games if there is no audience. Um, the, there is uh, this stat that, um, that VR advocates like to Um, point to, which is that VR headset shipments are on track to surpass console shipments um, over time. And while that is impressive, um, shipments is not the same thing as engagement and audience. Um, So, you know, like when you ship a PS5 or an Xbox... Uh, gamers are going to get hundreds of hours out of that because there's a whole ecosystem of games and apps for them to use on that platform, and they uh, hang on to it for multiple years. Whereas VR headsets are still developing, there's not that ecosystem of games, and you're not going uh, to, I would think, you're not going to play VR games for two, three hours in a session um, because it's its just like physically, its it's difficult, right? There's all sorts of issues with that. Um, so it's it's not quite apples to apples.
0: I would also say like it's not just it's not just like you know the audience wouldn't come if they don't want if the content doesn't exist. But I also have a feeling like the difference between an Xbox and a VR headset is that you don't need to put the Xbox on your head right, it's, it's yeah. there and you have a controller in your hand and you can like, you know survive for like 2-3 hours of gameplay, Elden Ring getting your ass kicked you know, get your ass kicked for 6 hours, no problem <laughs> but you know, you don't want to like end up puking while playing a game, yeah. right um, and so I feel there's also just like a general form factor issue, so even though like, you know units are kind of going up um, and that is true it When you ask the question about do people want it and really like mass market, do people want it? I feel it's also just like a general form factor issue with this thing. Mm -hmm. But um, AR glasses, I mean, if these glasses of mine were, you know, AR glasses and uh, they solve like the, you know, uh, two, three hours, no dizziness issue. uh, Why not? You know, I just don't want like this. Huge ass headset <laughs> on my head, you know. <laughs> so,
1: yeah, Ma- and, Matthew Ball released to was it? I think it was to yesterday. A very, wait, we're recording. When are we
2: <laughs> earlier this week? <laughs> Recently. <laughs> Recently,
1: um, a very interesting deep dive into VR and the technology and what are the issues that it has to solve. And even if it is possible to solve the issues that it requires to build games that are I don't know triple A immersive experiences like that on on VR. And I think the market is just in the early adopter phase. There's a lot of rotation in terms of uh, hardware. You, quick, you invest a significant amount of money. There's not a lot of content. And a few years later, you have to keep replacing it to keep up with the, with the best improvement on it. Um, and also my experience with VR games is it was, it was interesting, but also disappointing because even though there's already limited content, and I had to play many games to find a game that didn't make me motion sick, for me to play. So then it's an even tiny sliver, you know, depending on how, how much your body can take with uh, you know, with how, <laughs> with how it works. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think mass market is still away, and I honestly don't see how it's going to be possible yep. to reach that level of AAA in a VR headset for another decade.
0: Just just to like, maybe. Put some numbers to the conversation, so you know. Um, uh, one question that we can also ask is: Is the tech really selling? And this is like to Matt's point about the whole VR shipment stat versus console. So, since um, since 2019 up until the end of 2022, there have been about 10 million plus units of the Quest uh, Quest Quest Two uh, that have been sold. Um, or not the Quest, uh, Quest, Quest 2, but um, just in general, like VR tech. But um, 80 to 90% of that market share is the Quest anyway. So it's basically that. Um, in the same, or like yeah, over the same time period, if you were to just compare that to Xbox you know, Series X, that's about like 20 million units, and PS5 is 30 million units. And I guess maybe that that's why like a lot of the, you know, um, VR maxis are kind of saying that, yeah, that are kind of bringing that stat up, but um, I kind of went into a little bit of a rabbit hole to maybe like you know is there a way to kind of prove numerically that <laughs> the VR is not going to be a thing? So um, something. So this was kind of looking at um, what Meta is doing and like this massive thirty six billion dollar investment that they're kind of putting into um, Reality Labs, I guess it's called, right? Um, So yeah, the the question I tried to ask is we are kind of generating revenue for Meta. The answer is a big no, uh, but here's how it kind of breaks down. Um, Very recently, um, Meta started like showcasing a different revenue line item and cost line items for Reality Labs. So you can kind of like back calculate a lot of stuff. So, since 2019 until like Q3 of 22, the total revenue has been 6 billion. 75% of that is hardware. So, that's about 4.5 billion. And 25% of that is software, which is 1.5 billion. And software is basically revenue coming in from the Quest store, you know, IAPs and like game purchases and stuff. 6 billion in revenue. Total cost. 36 billion. So they are negative 30 billion in the whole <laughs> to basically break even. Um, let's assume that today meta gets that gets any further cost down to zero. Let's say that the total cost continues at 30 billion to essentially break even um, and you know assuming that same 25 uh, 75 to 25 uh, percentage split on hardware to software, meta would need to make 22.5 billion on hardware which at a 400 dollar price equates to 55 to 60 million units of that hardware a lot of uh, market research firms itself are estimating that the vr market is going to be like a 15 billion dollar market in 2027 and you know meta needs to like make up 30 billion <laughs> in cost so of course, like that, I don't think that's gonna happen. Like fifty-five to sixty million units getting sold, I I don't know. I, it just doesn't feel uh, possible. And that's where like the pressure is really on Meta to kind of juice the software side of it, right? That's where they would like make really scalable profits through their store. And and yeah, then it basically comes down to games. Like where do the where does Meta actually get the content? And then it goes back to, you know, what Matt was saying, that whole chicken-egg uh, issue with, with the content. And we already know, like, you know, um, through the Steam VR stats, the number of games are actually going down. People, developers are just not convinced about building uh, for, for this technology. And over and above, there's, yeah, there's the form factor issue that we kind of, um, you know, discuss. So, I don't know, even from the numbers angle, it it just didn't add up,
2: you know. It, there's reason to be skeptical of some of the numbers too. Um, you know, one of the the points I found interesting from the Matthew Ball piece was that some of the the hit titles on VR, Rec Room VR chat, they don't even require VR anymore. Like you can play it on you know quote unquote 2D devices. And mm. so I you know I wouldn't be surprised if Gorilla Tag went to um uh you know 2D uh, platform of some sort, twin sticks, you know. Kind of makes sense with the arm movement uh, things. I I don't know. Maybe I'm oversimplifying, but the point is, like, when you see numbers around, like, you know, user counts for these VR apps, like, it's it's important to look at the split of how many are actually doing it in VR versus on a console or a mobile device or something, uh, because it's a a guarantee it's not like an even split. Yeah, I I just wanted
0: to say uh, maybe just uh, make one comment on the content uh, in VR games. So yeah. Girl Attack really, really looks like a fun game. Um, You know, when I just have YouTube videos uh, at uh, to access the experience, but um, but yeah, a lot of the VR games, like uh, like Matt also mentioned, they um, just have also short life cycles. They aren't really built from a live operations aspect. You know, so Girl Attack, even through the videos I was watching you've watched like a 15-minute video and you can already see like the gameplay has a super high no- novelty factor. But then as, you know, the session continues, these are streamers. So, you know, they're trying to like keep things entertaining, but you can also start to see, okay, when it kind of gets a little bit fake entertaining. <laughs> so the novelty factor yeah. like kind of just wears off quite quickly also. But either way, super interesting game and quite quite innovative and definitely look fun.
1: Yeah. And when you're talking about uh, Meta being able to recover the investment that they've been making, I almost feel it's the race. We'll see who doesn't give up and doesn't mind keeping on sinking in the R&D. And they're essentially carving out a new market and leading it. And what can they ever hope to recover the, the cost of that R&D? I think we've seen Microsoft, they they've bowed out of the race. I believe a lot of their layoffs was from the... Uh, mixed Reality, Tech, tech HoloLens, Tool, also the HoloLens. They were getting the funding from a U.S. deal with the defense. Mm. I think they were struggling with the performance of what they were delivering. So yeah, Microsoft's bowed out. We still see Apple continuing to pursue this, I guess magically, even in the game anymore.
2: They were acquired, or mostly acquired by a Saudi company, I believe. Oh, the and Saudi investment doing fund doing like um, enterprise applications,
1: right? So Meta might Meta might win from by default. We'll have to see what Apple releases. Um. Yeah, I
0: just, I just hope, like, yeah. At the end of the day, like, if you know the revenues actually come out of the software side of things, and they're able to like build a, a great store experience that has a lot of great content and you know vr games get to a point of you know becoming live operated you know experiences and all of those transactions are kind of going through the store meta would face or would um, meta would have a really great shot at making up a lot of this you know investment and all the future investment that you know mm-hmm. they would do but But yeah, it's a lot of ifs until that point. And also, I really hope like Meta is just thinking about the form factor of things, you know, and they're just not stuck on this idea of a big headset on your head. So, um, so yeah, I just hope they're also thinking about (laughs) that and evolving the form factor in a way that fits for mass market much better.
1: Yeah, I think we need to touch this topic again in two years, see where we're at
2: or five or five
1: <laughs> we'll all still be together and happy right
2: yes okay watching, <laughs> watching overwatch league and vr in the meta voice
1: yeah. <laughs> um if you enjoyed today's episode you can help us reach others by subscribing on your preferred platform we always enjoy hearing from you so leave us a comment on on youtube you can also sign up to the free Navic digest newsletter And listen to other podcast content because we have industry leader interviews and our Crypto Corner talk about Web3 Gaming. Matt, Manu, thank you so much for joining today as usual. And we'll see you next week.